This morning's scripture is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Please stand for the reading of the word. Beginning in verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And all the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. You may be seated. All righty. I told them this morning I didn't want his TED Talk table, so we're going old-fashioned here with the music stand. Um, Again, yeah, I've been here from day one uh, at the King's Church. Stephen and I, um, we reconnected. Literally, we walked in the door of Foothill Church, and he was there. And I'm like, we played worship together umpteen years ago, and you sold me a guitar case, right? So ever since then, the rest is history. And, and my wife and I were in uh, at King's Church from day one. And honestly, it's a privilege to get to, to open God's Word. Um, Kelly and I were talking like, hey, it's the first time preaching here. Is that kind of weird? I'm like, you know what? We've got God's words open. I have some notes that come from God's word. How bad can it be? So we'll test that hypothesis here um, uh, in, in, in the coming minutes. So before uh, we just dive into the text, let me um, just ask you a question. Um, I want you to imagine that you got to meet somebody super famous, super influential, maybe somebody you look up to, God forbid, an Instagram influencer, maybe uh, somebody leading in your industry, maybe one of the richest people in the world. Uh, maybe an author or a pastor, and let's just say you got to ask that person one question, 
right? What would it be? What would you say to that person? Somebody from history, uh, a musician that you really look up to, what one question would you pick for one of your heroes that you would ask them? And I, and I start with that question because today we get the privilege of listening in on a guy who gets to ask Jesus one question. And it's a fascinating conversation. I'm really thankful that Chris and Ellie got married today and not last week because I would have had to preach on divorce and this one will preach itself. So we get to listen in on this one critically important question. As Michael just read it to you, he runs up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now you could go a little bit broader with that question because it's a question that kind of haunts all of humanity for all time. Is there an afterlife? Is there a heaven? Uh, is there a hell? And if so, how do I get in on that, right? That's essentially what he's asking Jesus. This is one of the most important questions of all human history. And whether you're a believer in Christ or whether you're just checking Jesus out, it's something that resonates with your soul. Like, yeah, I want to know what Jesus would say to this question. And it's awesome because we get to listen in on that answer today. So let me zoom out a little bit. Here in the Gospel of Mark, we're 10 chapters in, a 16-chapter gospel, and Jesus is really starting to ramp up his dialogue with his disciples. Um, he's starting to become a little more maybe black and white, draw some lines in the sand over what a true disciple looks like. I'll remind you about a month ago, Pastor Stephen taught on this verse. If anyone would come after me, Mark 8, 34, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's really hard-hitting, right? You want to be saved? Lose your whole life, and it will be saved. And today we get a little picture of how that looks in action with the story of the rich young ruler. So if you're a note-taker, we're going through three things. I'll say them up front. We're looking at the man's assumptions. We're looking at Jesus's loving corrections, and then we're looking at the disciples' lessons, okay? Three things. So you can write those down, and you can watch the YouTube video later. You got the notes already. So first of all, the man's assumptions. Let's look at the man's assumptions. And before I dive into his three assumptions here, let me point out something about him. Many times Jesus gets asked questions in the Gospels, and they're kind of like gotcha questions, right? Like, hey, should we pay taxes or not? And there's like a fingers crossed behind your back sort of thing, like I'm going to get him, I'm going to get him, right? Um, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the religious leaders will do this to try to trick Jesus to get evidence so that they could throw him in prison and eventually crucify him. This question is not like those questions. What we see in this guy, did you notice what the text says? He ran up to Jesus, he kneels before him, and he calls him good teacher. He addresses him with honor. What that tells us about this man is this question is sincere. He really wants to know. Imagine this picture of someone running up to Jesus, kneeling down. There's urgency here. There's desperation. There's sincerity. And so he's probably following Jesus around with one of the crowds, and he's hearing this, and something is gnawing in his soul, which creates the urgency around this question. So let's unpack his assumptions and let's see maybe if you and I have some of the same assumptions that he did in asking Jesus this all-important question. Assumption number one, he assumed that he could do something to inherit eternal life. 
that he could do something to inherit eternal life. If you look down at verse 17, the question's right there. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And with apologies to Mark, I'm going to reference Matthew as well. So Matthew gets some stage time. In Matthew's gospel, the question is phrased this way. Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? You see right there in his question that he assumes that he could do something to get in on eternal life, to enter the kingdom. What do I got to do, Jesus? Just give me the answer. I'll go do it. But what is that thing that I have to do? Um, This man, we know he's the rich young ruler. It actually doesn't say, it says in Mark that he's rich. Um, In Matthew and Luke, we fill in the blanks that he's um, young and he uh, is a ruler of some sorts. Obviously Jewish as well because he's familiar with the commandments. And I just think about a guy like this who's, you know, maybe not quite middle-aged yet like me, and he's rich, he's had success, and he thinks, man, when I go about my business, I make a good investment. I make a good business plan, and what happens? I get a good result. And so now he takes that dynamic, and maybe you can relate with this, and he applies it to his spiritual life. If I just make a good plan and make some good decisions, I will get a good result. Bada bing, bada boom. What do I got to do? Like, I'll do it. I'm smart. I'm shrewd. I'm a moral guy. What do I got to do? I could do one more thing. Is it give a little bit more? Is it go to the synagogue a little bit more? Is it maybe just like control my anger a little bit better? What is that one thing I got to do? Because then I'll just go do it. Give me the answer. You might look at this and go, man, this isn't orthodox Christianity at all. This is kind of child's play, dude. This is a rookie move, a rookie question. Um, The Barna Research Group is a group that does surveys on America, surveys on uh, specifically the church and Christianity in America. And in 2020, they ran a survey that found this. The majority of people who would call themselves Christian believe that a person can gain eternal salvation by being or doing good. And maybe some of us, we wouldn't say that we believe that, but we live that way. We go, I got to be a good person if I really want to be saved, right? So in 2020, this was three years ago, and some things have happened since 2020. I don't know if one of the side effects of COVID or vaccines was better theology, but 52% of Christians would say, you can gain salvation by being a good person. That means like half the people in this room would share this assumption that if, I, if, if I'm going to get into heaven, if I'm going to inherit eternal life, it's by doing something good, by being good in some way. So assumption one, he could do something to inherit eternal life. Let's move through. Assumption number two is this, that he had kept all the commandments. He assumes that he had kept all the commandments. In verse 20, he says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. What I love about what Jesus does here is this guy runs up, hey, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't go into like the Romans road. Romans wasn't written yet, but you get the deal. He doesn't go like, well, just, you know, accept Christ into your heart and we're good. What he says is, ah, you know the commandments, man. He gives him an answer. He plays along with him to draw out his heart. So he gives him this answer. You know the commandments, and he starts to rattle some of them off. And he says, all of them I've kept. All of them. I've kept them all. This is a crack open of this guy's heart. Maybe it's a crack open of your heart as well. He finds no fault in himself. So he goes, I want to know how to get to heaven. I want to know how to inherit eternal life. I know the problem's not me, right? You see that? The problem's not my obedience to God's law. 
That's not the problem, so it's got to be something else. I've kept all the commandments, teacher, all of them from my youth. Not, I kind of am a good guy, not I've kept most of them, I've kept them all. Whatever the problem is in this man's spiritual life, he doesn't view it as his behavior, his attitude, his character. This brings to mind for me how the Apostle Paul described um, himself before he became a Christian. When he recounts in Philippians 3 his life before Christ, he writes these words in Philippians 3, 6. As to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. The rich young ruler says, I've kept all the commandments from my youth. Paul says, as to the law keeping and the righteousness there, I was blameless. Now, no doubt Paul and the rich young ruler probably looked pretty good from the outside. Their family probably lined up really nice for for family pictures and the lawn was edged and mowed and the whole thing. But the problem, they didn't think the problem was inside, in their law keeping, in their behavior. So that's his second assumption that he had actually kept all the commandments. And assumption number three here is that he still lacked something. He still lacked something. Jesus, if you look down at verse 21, begins his answer by saying, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. If you go again to Matthew, as he records this interaction, the question is actually, or the young man actually says, all these commandments I have kept, what do I still lack? So even with all of his behavior, even with all of his morality, even with all of his career success, his reputation, his status, his youth, inside he still knew that something didn't add up. Something was still lacking. That's why he asks this question. Something gnawed at him. Maybe he heard the Sermon on the Mount. And something in there was just like, oh man, I'm not that. Like, but I do all the good things. What do I lack? This reminds me a little bit of Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes. And he became rich and young and had everything. And Ecclesiastes 2, it's this awesome description, honestly, of of the American dream. I built gardens. I built houses. I had servants. I had money. I had entertainment, right? Not Netflix, but still entertainment in some way. And, and, And Solomon actually goes, it was a chasing after the wind. Something for Solomon didn't add up. He still lacked something. The rich young ruler with everything he had going for him. Even being a really moral person, he still lacked something. So I want to ask you, before we move on to Jesus' loving corrections, do you see yourself at all in these assumptions? Do you see yourself at all in this man's value system? Do you assume that when you approach God, whether you're a believer or not, that, man, I've just got to be good enough. I've got to have a good Saturday night so I can go to church on Sunday morning. Because if I don't, like all bets are off there right? Do you assume that you need to maybe clean yourself up? Or do you assume that there's some code out there that God just hasn't shared with you, that if I just do A, B, and C, then and only then I will be good? And do you assume despite all your trying, all your efforts, that you still have an ache inside knowing that you lack something? Many of you, like me, maybe you're raised in a Christian home, and I praise God for that. I really do. But that doesn't save you. Following the rules doesn't save you, right? Just because you had these things going for you in life, what that produces in you is external morality and internal self-righteousness, which is what this guy had. And if any of that strikes a chord with you, which it does for me, it means that we share some of these false assumptions as we approach God. 
We share these assumptions about how we are accepted by God. And so I would love to correct these things for you and tell you where he's wrong and where to go, but Jesus actually does that. So we're going we're gonna to let Jesus answer these questions. So the man's assumptions, now Jesus' loving um, corrections. Cool, they got the, the loving. I added that one later. So good job, guys. Jesus' loving corrections. Before we unpack Jesus' just awesome answer, I would have loved to be there, how he works with this guy and draws him out. I want to point out Jesus' attitude, right? Michael read it. He emphasized it. I loved that. But look down at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Uh, One commentator said this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark it says Jesus loved somebody. It's not that Jesus didn't love anybody else in the Gospel of Mark. It was just that Mark wanted to emphasize right here that this response was out of love for this man. The word for look actually suggests like a purposeful intent gaze, not like a passing glance. Like Jesus isn't going, okay, a couple more reels. Yeah, what's the question, right? It's an intent. I'm focused on you. I'm focused on your question. My heart is for you as I answer this. Personally, directly, sincerely, Jesus speaks to this seeking man. What I love about what's about to come is what Jesus says Many of us don't have a category for as loving. If we pulled the room or we walked into these neighborhoods over here and we said, what's the love of Jesus like? What is the love of Jesus like? We would hear things like, well, it's affirming, it's encouraging, it's like a wind in your sails, it makes you feel really good. And I'm not saying that Jesus' love isn't encouraging or it's not a wind in your sails or it's not empowering. It certainly is those things. But do we have a category for the love of Jesus not affirming you? For the love of Jesus disagreeing with you. For the love of Jesus pushing back on you so hard that you walk away like this guy, disheartened and sorrowful. Do we have a category for that? Because that's a biblical category for the love of God and the love of Jesus. That he may do something to you, say something to you that leaves you sad and sorrowful. And we don't view that as loving in our culture. Jesus perfectly embodies that Ephesians 4 phrase, speaking the truth in love. Or Job 5 says this, he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. And Proverbs 27 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Jesus, as a great friend here, wounds this man. He gives him a very hard, very direct call. And it says that he did it while loving him, that this was a loving call. So one quick side takeaway, Jesus loves you enough to disagree with you. He loves you enough to disagree with you. Now let's unpack his corrections. That that was for free. So correction number one, no one is good. His first correction to the rich young ruler is that no one is good. Mark 10, 18, look down at the verse. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this guy thinks that he could do something more and he thinks he kept the law and kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one's good. Now, there are two implications from that. One, only God is good. You aren't good. The second implication is Jesus is that good God. He's not saying, Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm not good. Don't call me good. Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Connect the dots, sir. So Jesus corrects him by drawing this line in the sand. So the way we think about morality and behavior and who's good and who's bad is, is, is really based on comparison, 
right? So I'm kind of better than that guy, not quite as good as her, way better than him, right? That's how we do it. And so he comes up and says, I've kept all the commandments, good teacher. And Jesus goes, no one's good but God alone. And so Jesus corrects his thinking by telling him, no one's good, you're not good. And if you think I'm good, it's because I'm God. That's the connection that Jesus is making here. I could like hammer Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse to, to expose this teaching that you and I are not good. Romans 3, 11 to 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Psalm 51.5, I was brought forth, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin, my mother conceived me. Right from the get-go, David the zygote, he's a sinner, right? That's what he's saying right there, from birth. And let me reference that research study again, that same research study from the Barna Research Group. 74% of Americans believe that we're neither good nor evil, that we're neutral and we just choose between the two. But 50% of Christians said that same thing in rejection of clear scripture, that we are not good, that we are fallen by nature and by choice. So again, half the people in here potentially go, we're kind of neutral and maybe we could choose to be good, maybe we choose to be bad. Of course, we always think we chose good, right? We're never like, I chose bad. We're like, I chose good, but everybody else chose bad. So half the people in this room potentially don't, wouldn't agree that we're fallen, lost, or evil. And again, the problem is that when we look at morality, we compare ourselves to each other. And honestly, so this is, uh, this is for free. Again, I don't do social media. And you might think, oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's a nice life hack for you. Um, it's actually because I'm not good. And if I scroll through social media, I'll be like, that's stupid. You're an idiot. You're not good. That, those aren't cool shoes, right? No, I don't care about Taylor Swift. No. Like, I would just judge. I found myself just judging six ways to Sunday every time I was on it. Um, and so, like, you just, because our, our morality is comparative, I'm like, I'm better than him. I'm better than you. She doesn't even eat organic. Like, it's all these things. We just compare ourselves to everybody on, right? Like, and you probably do the same thing. Like, okay, I'm maybe not perfect, but I'm pretty good because I'm better than Johnny and I'm better than Jenny and I'm better than this guy. And so we just think of morality like that. And this guy probably did too. And so I want you to hear clearly from the mouth of Christ that we are not good. Inside, we are fallen. We are broken. We need a savior. It's not that we're neutral and we have the tools to reach up to God. It's that we're not good, we're fallen, and all hope is lost. So this guy asked Jesus the question, how do I get eternal life? And it starts right here, by realizing that you're not good, you're not good enough, and only God is. That's Jesus' first correction, that no one, no one is good. Correction number two is this, you don't keep all the commandments. This is obviously a related point, but I want you to see how Jesus does this here. Correction number two, you don't keep all of the commandments. So Mark 10, 21 and 22, listen what Jesus says. He says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And then the guy walks away disheartened. So I want you to follow me on this point. Jesus doesn't come at the guy and say, hey, you don't keep all the commandments. You just said you did. You don't. Wrong. Owned. Right? Jesus doesn't do that. What he does is he gives him a challenge. He says, okay, you want to inherit eternal life. Why don't you do this? 
Go sell everything you have. Just give it to the poor and come follow me. And the guy refuses to do it. He's like, I can't, I can't do that. So instead of telling him that he doesn't keep all the commandments, Jesus shows him. Because commandment number one is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? So what does Jesus do? You shall have no other gods before me. Let's start with commandment one. Why don't you sell your money or sell everything you have, give all your money away, and then come follow me. There's your first test. And he goes, not a chance. What that shows about his heart is he worships money above God. He could say he worshiped God, but when push came to shove, he would rather part with Jesus and keep his stuff than part with his stuff and gain Jesus. He didn't keep all the commandments. And Jesus doesn't tell him, he shows him. Your true God, your true idol is your wealth and your stuff. There's no doubt that his behavior was good. Maybe, dude, maybe this cat like tithed more to the church than anybody else. But it wasn't about internal worship for him. It was about external righteousness and morality. Because at the end of the day, he would not part with his stuff when Jesus called him to do so. Which showed that was what he worshipped, even above God. Billy Graham, um, he's an up-and-coming pastor. You should Google him sometime. He has a really insightful summary of the story. He says this, The young man came with the right question to the right man and received the right answer, but he made the wrong decision. And he did that because he didn't worship God above all else. He worshiped his money. He worshiped his stuff. So correction number two, you actually don't keep all the commandments. Correction number three from Jesus, salvation is submission to the king. Mark 10, 21, I don't want us to skip over this because we, we, we kind of latch onto the, oh man, he's told him to sell all his things. Like, that's kind of crazy. Do I got to do that? I got some, you know, I got some cool socks or whatever. Do I have to sell those? And No, salvation is submission to the king. Mark 10, 21, come follow me. I would submit to you that this is actually the heart of Jesus's answer to the question. What do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Come follow me. The reason he brings up the money and the stuff and the possessions is because he knew that in that guy's heart, he wouldn't leave that stuff to come follow Jesus. So if you're looking for the short answer to the question on how to inherit eternal life, it's follow Jesus. That's the answer, right? So there's a negative call and a positive call here. Get rid of all your things. Get rid of the things you love more than me and come now follow me. Salvation isn't walking an aisle, praying a prayer, raising a hand. God may have used those means to save some of you, but what I want you to see here is that for Jesus, salvation is submitting to him as Lord, right? Um, there's this old, I forget who said it, but like, so my name's Ryan Mann, and you can't tell to, you can't say to me if I come to your house, like, I want Ryan to come inside and man to stay outside, right? Like, it's like, but I, I'm Ryan Mann. That's who I am. And when we split Jesus up like this, like, well, I want you to give me eternal life, but I don't want to follow you. Like, it's splitting Jesus up. Like, he is Savior and he is Lord. And we see here that the rich young ruler would not submit to Jesus as Lord. So let me really quickly address this question, like, on the stuff. So are Christians supposed to sell all their things? He says, hey, if you want to inherit eternal life, he kind of gives him an answer. Go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor. 
My answer to that is maybe. If your things prevent you from following Jesus, then maybe. Maybe you need to sell your things. Maybe you need to sell some things. If Jesus would ask you to leave something to gain him, and you would go, that's a, tough, that's a tough decision. Then yeah, maybe you need to get rid of that thing, for sure. Whatever it might be, whether it's money or stuff or whatever. In this encounter, Jesus, I think, is getting personal with this guy. And so I would just ask you to fill in the blank for you. That Jesus asked this guy, hey, in order to follow me, you got to sell all your things. you got to get rid of it all. Because Jesus knows he loves it more than he, would, more than he would love Jesus. And so for you, that might be something else. The condition of your heart might be something different. What would keep you from surrendering to Jesus to follow him? So don't breathe a sigh of relief just because I'm saying, hey, you might not have to sell all your stuff. You're like, sweet. Don't, don't, don't rest easy there. If Jesus came to you today and said, hey, I want you to leave that job. It's not been good for you. The reputation, the cutting of corners, the lying that you continually do to get ahead, I want you to leave that. Hey, that, you know, relationship, whenever you're around those guys, you know what happens. Like, I want you to leave that. Hey, that device, mm -mm, not good for you. I want you to leave that. And if you would double clutch on that and go, I don't know, man, that's kind of crazy. Remember, even a couple weeks ago, it's better to enter heaven with one eye than it is to enter hell with two eyes. Gouge out your eye if that's what it takes, right? What would prevent you from following Christ, leaving a friendship, a possession, a career, a behavior? Hey, no matter what, I've got to be, have attention on me. I've got to have the attention on me in social circumstances. I've got to brag about this, that, or the other. What would it be where you would go, that's a hard call on me? Maybe it's not money and things. Maybe it is. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a behavior. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a practice. And I would say is even if you're a true believer, that's the question of discipleship every day. What things is God asking me to turn from so I can worship him more fully and follow him more effectively? So what would he tell you to leave? What would the Holy Spirit bring up to your mind on a passage like this? And I'll just let you and God handle that question together so those are Jesus' loving corrections to this guy. Our takeaways for today, third point, the disciples' lessons. The disciples' lessons. And there are two. And this actually, this passage is so rich. Like, I had lunch with Stephen this week. I'm like, I don't even know, man. Like, this is so good. We can take it like 18 different ways that are all amazing. So here's our two main takeaways for uh, today. So the disciples' two lessons. The first one is this. Salvation is only possible with God. Salvation is only possible with God. Mark 10, 26, so the guy walks away. Now Jesus got, got his boys around him, right? They're breaking it down together. <clears throat> Jesus says, basically, it's so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus ups it. He says, it's so difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven, like full stop. And then in verse 26 and 27, the disciples, it says, they were exceedingly astonished and they said to him, then who can be saved? It's a great question. Who the heck can be saved? If, if it takes leaving everything to follow you, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So the disciples respond with this question. Again, 
I can imagine the disciples seeing this guy roll up, right? He's in the Beamer. He parks there. He's wearing the suit. He's like, hey, Jesus, I got a question. And they're like, we just got budget, right? That's what they're thinking, right? We, we got funding to do this ministry thing. And then Jesus sends him away a few minutes later, sad and sorrowful. And then after that, they're going like, that was a stupid ministry move, Jesus. Like, we could have really used that. Who can be saved? Like, with that sort of a question. Jesus doesn't actually say, well, that guy was rich. So if you're really poor, you can be saved. He says, that guy was young. So if you're really old, then, then you can be saved. <laughs> Sorry, I thought of making a joke about my dad's age, and then I stopped, and then I told you that I was thinking about that. So there you go. Uh, if you're a ruler, you can't be saved. But if you're not a ruler, then, then you can be saved. You just don't be like that guy on the outside. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, okay, well, the conservatives, they can be saved. Oh, the progressives, they could be saved because they actually do stuff. Okay, you know, like the homeschoolers, they're in. Right? He's not, he doesn't say, well, these people, or the kids from Christian homes, they're in, right? Or, hey, the Calvinists can be saved, the Arminians can be saved, or whatever, fill in the blank, right? He doesn't start to rattle off like a list of, well, if you meet this general criteria, if your LinkedIn profile says this, you're in. The algorithm matches you to salvation, right? He doesn't say that. He says, with man, it's impossible. It's totally impossible, like, so, again, I mentioned I was raised in a Christian home, and sure, statistically, that maybe means I'm more likely to be a Christian, but internally, spiritually, doesn't mean anything. Christian home, it's impossible if that's all it is, right? It's impossible with man alone to be saved. If it's just about your behavior, if it's just about your background, if it's just about your reputation, chances of salvation are 0% and declining. That's essentially what Christ says if it's just left to us, there's no hope. There's no salvation. With man, totally impossible. But what's the hope? He says, but with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. The rich guy can be saved. The Pharisee could be saved. The Roman soldier at the foot of the cross can be saved. Uh, the self-righteous person can be saved. The crazy rampant sinner can be saved. The prostitute can be saved. The tax collector can be saved. With God, it's possible. Here's what that tells us. The statement tells us it's impossible with man, so nobody is good enough to be saved. I don't care. I don't care if you go to seminary. I don't care if you get a doctorate in theology. I don't care how long you've gone to church. I don't care if you're here at 7 a.m. I don't care if you buy the best donuts for the church. I, I love the donuts. Don't get me wrong. But those things do not amount to a higher chance of salvation. No one is good enough to be saved. But the statement that all things are possible with God means no one is too hard for God to save. So you got a past, right? It, introduce yourself to Jesus' friends. One of them's a terrorist. One of them's a tax collector. Follow Jesus around the Gospels where he's forgiving prostitutes and he's welcoming them to wash his feet and honoring them. There are unclean people according to the law and Jesus heals them, calls them clean, welcomes them back into community. No one is too hard for God to save. And I'm even talking about that person that just popped into your head. No one. If you think there's someone in your life too hard for God to save, you don't get the full weight of that statement. With God, all things are possible. The first step to making it happen is realizing that you can't make it happen. Salvation is possible once you realize that with you, it's impossible. It's impossible with man. And that brings us, salvation is only possible with God that brings us to our final point, that following Jesus is worth it. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're 
a believer or not. I don't know if you're checking Jesus out for the first time. You saw, you saw a sign. You're like, that's a cool logo. What is that? Is that a day spa? I'll go in there. Oh, gosh, they're singing. Okay, I guess I'll stay. It's awkward to leave. I don't know where you're at. If you're following Jesus and you need encouragement, if you're wondering, is all this real? I just want you to end with the truth that following Christ is worth it. I want you to think maybe of a time when something exceeded your expectations. I'll tell you a story. Pastor Steve is not here, but you still get a food story for the day. So I ate one time, well, actually two times now, but um, Wagyu beef, a steak Wagyu beef. And I opened the menu and I'm from Chino, right? So I'm like, hey, where's Salisbury steak or whatever? Like you got a good grilled cheese. And there's a piece of steak that says Wag, Wagyu, Wagyu. And you know, I don't even know how to order it because I'm from some back, backwoods town that, with a lot of cows, right? So I open it up. I go, well, that's like, you know, more than I made the first year at, at, at my job, but that looks good, right? And it's not fish, so I will eat that. And you assume it's going to be pretty good, and it exceeded all expectations. I about literally died and went to heaven my first bite, right? I was like cutting it with like a, a straw. It was so good, right? It exceeded all expectations for me. It was so worth it. I don't care what the price, and well, it also wasn't my money, besides the point. <laughs> it was so worth it. It exceeded every expectation, right? Maybe something for you is so hard in life. Like, I think some of you have taken kids, like toddlers, to Disneyland. That's like the worst day in the world for a parent, right? Because there's cotton candy, and there's bubbles, and there's balloons, and there's princesses, and there's like cartoon characters running around waving at your kid. And you're just about to die by the time you hit like the 18th floor of the structure. And then you look back at the pictures and you're like, oh, sweetie, it was so worth it. That smile, that light up thing that is making noise right now, it was all so worth it. It's just so worth it, even though all the work you put in, all the sacrifice you put in. And I want to submit to you that it's the same dynamic with following Christ, that it's worth it. And let me share, you know, now you're hungry. Right, So let me bring it back to the text here really quickly. Peter says this in verse 28. He says, they're, 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 they're breaking this whole conversation down. He goes, see, we, we've left everything and followed you. What's he doing there? He's like wrestling with the whole story. Like you sent that dude away and what happened? And then the light bulb goes on and Peter, you know, he's ready, fire, aim with his mouth. Like he just like says it. And he goes, well, he left. But you know who didn't? We, we left everything to follow you. So like, we did pretty good, right? Like, we sacrificed a lot to follow you, Jesus. And I want you to look at what Jesus says and how he answers him. Mark 10, 29 to 31, Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house, brother, sister, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. I can't go through that word by word at this time, but what he says is, yeah, you left a lot of things, but nobody who leaves those things for my sake doesn't get blessed back. He says, you're actually going to get blessed back now and this time a hundredfold and then in eternal life. And in short, what Jesus is saying is following me always pays off. It's always worth it. For the rich young ruler, what happened is he didn't pull out the spreadsheet and go, okay, following Jesus, pros and cons. Keeping all my stuff, pros and cons. But that's the judgment he made. Following Jesus isn't worth it. That's the judgment that he made. And Jesus says to his disciples later that nobody who sacrifices for me 
doesn't end up getting blessed a hundredfold in the end and in eternity. So how does this work? This is true for the believer to help us keep going. It's true for the unbeliever if you make the decision to follow Christ for the first time ever today. So we might leave behind money or a career, but we're blessed with the richness of the joy and peace of God. We're paid back a hundredfold right there. We, we leave behind certain relationships, friendships, sometimes for some of you, even family relationships, but we're blessed with the deeper fellowship of the family of God. We leave behind certain pleasures of this world and we gain the pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. We leave behind our earthly frail identity that changes with the seasons and we gain a heavenly unshakable identity in Christ. Following Jesus always pays off in the end, whatever it might be, whatever you turn your back on, whatever you sacrifice, always pays off in the end. Now, if you're like me, as I worked through this passage this week, this is hard. Jesus has drawn lines in the sand. Honestly, to me, it even sounds impossible. I can't be good enough. I can't save myself. I can't even abandon all the things that Christ would want me to abandon perfectly. I can't sacrifice like that. Well, in the next passage, spoiler alert, Jesus talks about his death and he foretells it again to his disciples. There's only one who turned behind all of his riches and sacrificed everything perfectly. It wasn't you, it wasn't me. Jesus had the riches of heaven. He sacrificed it all to come down to earth, to give his life, to save you and to save me. Only one person did that perfectly. Even if the rich young ruler, if we had an alternate ending where he said, yeah, it sounds good, he wouldn't have sacrificed perfectly. He may have had some lapses, just like you and I do. But Christ sacrificed perfectly. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, and, and then we'll wrap up here. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. Philippians 2 says, even though Christ was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He was born in the likeness of man, and eventually he submitted to death on a cross. Christ turned on the riches of heaven, sacrificed perfectly so that you and I can have eternal life if we submit to the call to come and follow me. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for big sweeping statements in scripture. I thank you for glimpses in to Jesus's conversations. And I ask by your spirit that you would help us to turn from everything and follow you, whatever it might be. Help us to see by your spirit in the eyes of our heart that you are worth it. Help us to see both the joy of following you now, even with persecutions, and the joy of being with you forever in heaven. I ask that you would lead us, not just as individuals, but as a church body to embody that truth together so that the world would look and say, those people are different. I pray this all in Christ's name.